I still believe, you know, that human beings should be allowed to be treated by their doctors, saying, well, you know, he's he's not going to get any better. You know, there's nothing, you know, he's not, he's miserable, he's not, da 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 So I think you have, should have the right to, to you know. Today, yeah, yeah. absolutely, you if should. You wish to. Yeah. Absolutely, I, yeah. I absolutely think you should. And everybody who gets so worried about that being exploited, they're not completely yes. un, unrealistic. People, oh. it can be exploited, but if you don't want to live in the conditions of your body, in whatever that body is, yeah, well, I you know, and you're of sound mind, whatever that yeah. means, I think you should have the right to yeah. die. Yeah. But I can't give it you. No, 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 only no, the state can. I don't think things will change in this country until society starts fighting for it. And we do have local groups in Dignity and Dying. They have local activities. You go to your doctor's surgery, you can become part of the patient group at a doctor's surgery. Because most doctors in this country, particularly family doctors, are, well, let me take that back, all doctors, but family doctors are the ones who can be approached in this they're really 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 busy and they don't have time to think about stuff by and large that isn't necessary so until you present them with it they won't have time to think about it and they certainly won't have time to, to go and argue for it so we need to start a bottom-up oh it has started already a bottom-up grassroots campaign for people to say to their gps why haven't we got this the next time it comes around we want you to go and fight for it at the bma the bma has just held this survey don't wait until it happens to you or happens to your parents or whatever. Let's look around the world, see that 150 million people have managed to fight for it, and let's have some of it ourselves. The Declaration of Geneva has been updated over the years, but it still says, I will maintain the utmost respect for human life. It doesn't just say a general respect for human life, the utmost respect. The World Medical Association is another very important organisation and they have a declaration that is, is still opposing assisted suicide and euthanasia. They reaffirmed that quite strongly just in 2019. Being dead is one thing. You have to accept it anyway, whether you're religious or not. You're going to die, everybody. Yep. That's why some people say talking about the right to die is silly. Because, of course, you, we, has the right to die. That's also the reason why we changed it to medical aid in dying. It is dying which is important. And that whole process of dying, that is something we can soften as doctors. Do you remember you? Do you remember me? And all our history Trapped in a Sunless Sea. Memories of my dad. Episode 6. I don't want to die, but I'm dying. This podcast includes content funded by the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust. They have a survey at podcastviews.com, which I'd really appreciate you filling in. Fill it in for Getting Better Acquainted, the podcast that Down to a Sunless Sea grew out of and is produced by. As mentioned in episode one, the general content note for this series is death, dementia, old age and mental health issues. In this episode, there are some additional things to be aware of. It's going to talk about bereavement, 
suicide, disability, abortion and terminal illness. So I'm talking with Rob Jonquière. You're in the Netherlands and I'm in the UK. So you're a former director of the NVVE. The NVVE is what they call the Dutch Right to Die Society. You can say it is a patient society where members are people who originally came together and started the organization to get a law going in the Netherlands on legalizing euthanasia. It started after a juridical process against a doctor who did euthanize her patient and she was prosecuted and people in the Netherlands said well this is bad this doctor was not a criminal but was certainly someone who's doing well and that organization grew enormously it started in 73 when I became the CEO in 1999 it had over 100,000 members so it is certainly a large organization you can say that what they do is advocacy giving information to their members and striving to have a law. And actually in 2001, we succeeded more or less because then the Netherlands approved the law in the parliament. And although everybody said, well, now then you can stop with this organization, we decided now we have to go on, not because we wanted more and more and more, but just to see that the law was used as it was meant to be used. So I'm here at the Christian Medical Fellowship with Mark Pickering, the first guest on the show who has, well, no, in fact, not the first guest on the show who has the same surname as me or last name, family name, because my dad, of course, is also called Pickering. But this is Mark Pickering. Uh, Hello, and thanks for having me here at your office. Thanks, Dave. It's an honour to be here with another Pickering. We're here to talk about assisted dying because Mark is part of Care Not Killing. So what is Care Not Killing? Care Not Killing is an alliance of different organisations. Some of them are disability rights organisations, some of them are medical organisations organizations. Some of them are religious organizations. So CMF is one of the founder members of that. The CNK exists really to promote palliative care and to oppose assisted suicide and euthanasia. So I am here in the home of Jackie Davis from Dignity in Dying. Hello, Jackie. Hi, Dave. Nice to meet you. I'm a doctor. I've been practicing for many years now, and I chair Dignity in Dying's medical branch, which is called Healthcare Professionals for Assisted Dying. I got involved several years ago because somebody asked me to participate in a debate on assisted dying at the annual meeting of the British Medical Association. And I said, no, thanks. I don't do that moral stuff, ethical stuff. It's too difficult. And uh, I went away and thought about it and thought, well, perhaps I really ought to get involved and I, I don't really know anything about it. And I looked up something about assisted dying and I thought, God, I can't believe we're being so paternalistic as doctors as to tell patients what they can and can't have. And I stood up and participated in the debate. We didn't win because the medical profession is by and large quite conservative on these ethical issues. And that's a good thing. We don't want things changing too quickly. But I did realise that until the medical profession stopped being vociferously opposed to assisted dying, I didn't think assisted dying would get anywhere in this country. So I went and spoke to the people who were at Dignity and Dying at that stage and said, I'd like to get involved. And so I joined the healthcare professionals for assisted dying. My professional history is that I started off as a general practitioner while I already met 
issues like making decisions at the end of life and not letting patients down. I practiced what at that time was illegal euthanasia on a couple of patients, which were actually dying in horrible situations. My emotions were with this kind of situation, and I certainly was not against euthanasia. I talked about it with my patients. So when, after an interval in professional training, I organized in the university for family doctors, I was asked to apply for a job at NVVE, which I did. And since then, I'm actually much involved in everything what goes on about euthanasia, assisted dying. And since my retirement in 2008, I am now the executive director of the World Federation of Right to Die Society. So more busy with things which is happening around the world. And after that happened, and I was well involved with it, I had two very bad deaths in my immediate family. One was an elderly relative who died of inoperable cancer and whose last weeks months were very overcast by the fact that she was afraid of having an undignified death. It wasn't necessarily about pain. She said, I don't mind death. I just mind how I die. And she died not a very dignified death, I'm sorry to say. My brother, who watched this happen, and he had terminal cancer at the time as a relatively young man, said, I'm not going to die like that. And he plotted to kill himself. And it's quite difficult to kill yourself, actually. People say very glibly, oh, if these people want to die, they can commit suicide. It's a very, very cruel thing to say. And it was very, very traumatic for everybody who was left behind. I'm sure deeply, deeply traumatic for him. What a dreadful way to finish your life. And it just really brought home to me that I had been involved in this, but it hadn't affected me personally. And I just thought, I'm really going to get involved in this now because this should not be happening. One person a week goes to Dignitas. 300 people a year in this country kill themselves with terminal illness. So we have to do something about it. And so I've got much more involved since then. I guess let's start with why you slash care not killing oppose assisted dying. Well, I think the terminology is really important to start with. So assisted dying is the phrase that we usually hear on the news and from campaign groups who want to change the law. We don't find that that's terribly helpful because it does mix up a couple of things. What happens every day in hospices and palliative care settings around the world is assisting the dying. They're already dying and we assist them by relieving symptoms. Whereas what we're talking about here with euthanasia or assisted suicide is something very different where you're actually bringing about somebody's death in an active sense. People often get understandably confused about some very legitimate decision-making in end-of-life medical care when you're either withdrawing medical care or medical procedures that are no longer appropriate, they might be futile medically, or you might be deciding not to have certain procedures and they're often very different to what's being talked about with assisted suicide and euthanasia. Something that's very important is the language around assisted dying because there are some obviously very, very passionately opposed people who are completely against assisted dying for personal reasons, often for religious reasons and professional reasons, the palliative care community, mostly very against assisted dying. And there's a big struggle over the language that's used because they will refer to assisted suicide and they'll refer to euthanasia. And that's because both those terms have very pejorative. It was actually criminal to, you couldn't be buried in consecrated ground in this country until relatively recently if you committed suicide. And euthanasia has all the overtones, of course, what happened in pre-World War II Nazi Germany. So those terms, we should never use them because they're so disrespectful to the patients who want an assisted death. You know, there's been a great move in the medical profession recently to use language that's kind to patients 
patients. So you don't talk about a diabetic patient. You talk about somebody with diabetes. You try to use words that are kind to the patient. And so the, the words that are kind to somebody who wants an assisted death is assisted dying. You don't talk about suicide. You don't talk about euthanasia, which is technically something a little bit different. So there is a big struggle over that language. Euthanasia is when the doctor or the nurse actually does the final act and administers the drug, usually intravenously, whereas physician-assisted suicide is when a doctor or nurse would prescribe the medication, but it's always down to the patient to actually take the medication. And when Lord Faulkner was trying to get a bill through Parliament not so long ago for assisted dying, which did quite well, actually, until unfortunately the government changed and and, uh, came to an end, the opponents tried to get all the language in that bill changed from assisted dying to assisted suicide, and they were voted out because it was quite clear why they were trying to do it. It's because that term is wrong. Most of the situations that we talked about or are advocated in the UK would be assisted suicide. Right, although, as you say, people are kind of pushing one way or the other in terms of terminology and those pushes are about being clear but they also represent a perspective. I mean suicide is a very evocative word and it's a word that I'm quite familiar with. I have depression and anxiety and so suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts as people might know it better are things that I deal with in my life. Having watched my dad in a very different circumstance wishing that he could be able to have the dignity that he wants and the end of life that he wants. In some ways, I see that as the same. Certainly, it's very hard to have circular conversations with him about him wanting to die. It's not very good for me to keep on the straight and narrow of not wanting to die myself. But they are actually very distinct things. You know, if I kill myself, then I don't have a whole lot of the rest of my life, which could potentially be great. My dad is 95 and he does not have the same circumstance as me. He's not cutting himself off from a a long future. And he certainly is not going to be the person he was before as he goes forward into his future. So I understand why people use the term suicide around this, but I also think that it is a bit confusing and misleading potentially because I do think they are quite distinct. Sure, and you've raised some really important points. I think whatever terminology we're using, it's important to understand for ourselves why we use that and to understand how that might come across to other people. Suicide and dignity are two words that you mentioned, and I think it's really important to unpack those. You'll often hear from campaigners, and you've also said that yourself quite eloquently for people who maybe struggle with mental health concerns it may feel like a different proposition for somebody who's perhaps with a terminal illness or very elderly themselves and very frail it may feel quite distinct to what we tend to think of as suicide but then at the end of the day suicide is simply the act of taking your own life actively that doesn't actually delineate whether someone has mental health condition or anything else or how long they would have left to live naturally. So we, we think back in the Greek times of you know the noble suicide and people would do that simply because it seemed to be the honourable way to end their life if, they, if they'd done something wrong or, or something else had happened. We've seen in many end-of-life situations, it's not that people actually have a mental health condition or that they want to die. It's simply that the life that is open to them, whether that's through a terminal illness or pain or some other kind of symptoms or loss of autonomy or dignity, as we've often heard it said, the life that seems open to them is not worth living. They prefer to end their life rather than to continue on the terms that seems open to them. So it's often a trade-off. Very sad and interesting case in California, which pretty much changed the law in California because California has assisted dying now. And it was a young woman called Brittany Maynard. And she was, I think, in her 20s, just got married, very nice looking young woman who was very active on social media. And she got a brain tumour. And she was told, we can keep you alive for a while, but you're going to die from this thing. And she started blogging 
looking because there wasn't assisted dying in California at that stage. And she thought there should be. And in fact, she had to go up to Oregon where they have had assisted dying for 20 years and register up there and have an assisted death up there. But she said something very important. She said, I don't want to die, but I'm dying. And I want to be in control of my death. People who want an assisted death, they don't want to die, but they're dying. And they want the control over their death when the time comes, because everybody's afraid of a death where suffering can't be relieved or an undignified death or whatever people are afraid of. It's not us to say what they should and shouldn't be afraid of. She made that such an important point. I'm not suicidal. People who are suicidal, they may not be terminally ill, but they want to die. People who want an assisted death are terminally ill and they don't want to die, but they want control. So the term assisted dying is very carefully thought through. It's respectful to the patients who want it. It's respectful to the doctors who are prepared to participate in it. I think we need to go beyond associating the act of suicide with a mental health condition. As you say, that can be confusing. On that, the interesting thing about suicide, if I, if we if we accept the premise, and I, as I say, I can, I can see the argument for the use Using that term. Suicide itself is no longer an illegal act in the UK mm-hmm. and many places. Certainly as somebody who is kind of active within mental health discourse and rights kind of discussions, I don't think it would be helpful to make suicide illegal again. In fact, I think it would probably cause more suicides if we made it illegal again and certainly a lot more shame around it mm-hmm. and, and a lot more pain for families who are already dealing with a lot of pain in those circumstances. So since suicide isn't illegal in this country, why should assisted suicide be illegal? Well, it's not something that we encourage. And I think that's the really crucial distinction there. You're absolutely right that the act of suicide is no longer illegal. What's the point in having it illegal? What's the point in trying to prosecute someone who's made a decision often in desperate circumstances? But once you start to encourage and assist it, then very different dynamics come into play. And I've noticed in recent years, there's there's often not so much responsibility around, for instance, media coverage of this because suicide has gone from being seen as something that we should avoid, we should try to help people to avoid, to actually something that's morally good, something that we should even encourage people to do. It's a, an expression of autonomy. It's, a, it's something positive that we should actually encourage people with. The word isn't even used so often because people talk about choice and control and all of these things do merge into one, I think. And it is a shame that some of the boundaries are being blurred and I think that people on both sides of the debate need to be very sensitive to that and how they use the terminology. It's quite a varied thing isn't it like different countries have very different approaches when I've been reaching out to a few different organizations to find out about this topic what I've discovered is that people don't like the word euthanasia very much. People from both sides if we have to look at this as a thing with sides get quite annoyed with that word. That's been quite the education to discover that a word that I thought was quite neutral turns out is is very political, which I shouldn't have been surprised about. That's happened to me many times before. It was used in the Netherlands before we had the law. And we talked about euthanasia and it was used, first of all, because of the Greek understanding, a good death. When we talked about it early 80s in society, in public, we had a commission who tried to sort of define to show what the field was we were talking about and they as a commission 
official state commission, they decided to define euthanasia as the termination of life on request of the person who asked for it only. So it is a deliberate act and it is only on request and it is only when the suffering is very bad and it must be happening by a doctor. So that was all included in the definition and right. nobody realized in 1985 that using this kind of definition for euthanasia would be so much a fight with other countries who always, and they still do to us, uh, combine it with the Nazi Germany. And of right. course, what Hitler did was never, never, never euthanasia, but he called it like this. I sometimes wondered what would have happened if he didn't have made the word euthanasia for his program or if we had changed in 1985 to a different subject. But I see around the world where people, especially because of the opposition, always uses this euthanasia Nazi uh, understanding, don't want to use euthanasia for their law. Terrible things that the Nazis and the Nazi doctors did, including the National Euthanasia Programme. It's an interesting thing when, when the spectre of the Nazis is brought up, because, I mean, obviously, what was done by the Nazis is is terrible. They weren't the first to do eugenics. I mean, Galton in the UK invented eugenics. But the thing about that is, as well, whilst I understand that they've blemished the word euthanasia with their usage of it, where they set up that programme, which was a eugenics programme, nobody who supports assisted dying now is asking for eugenics. They also called themselves national socialists, but I don't think everybody who says socialism is connected directly to the Nazis. They took and appropriated that word and turned it into something else. So I just, I guess I'm just wanted to have a little bit of nuance around that. No, absolutely. And I think one of the difficulties of even raising that side is that people very quickly will think, oh my goodness, you know, we're nothing like the Nazis. And of course we're not. It's a massive long way down the road. One of the really interesting things, though, is when you go back to some of the, the roots of the eugenics movement, it was the idea that there is such a thing as a life not worthy of living. That's a concept that we see very much in operation today. Now, no one's suggesting that it's going to take the same route that it did in Germany in the 1930s. Lots of reasons for that, but it's a concept that's that we've come back to after a few decades of realising what kind of damage that can do and, and who knows where things will take us in the future. I'm not sure how far we actually are necessarily from eugenics thinking. We've, we've got members of the government and people close to them flirting with those kind of ideas. Disabled people in this country are, you know, in many ways fighting against people who see them as lesser and not being able to be full human beings. And that is something that we do need to keep in our mind. also in the world discussions implies almost any action around the end of life, where we in the Netherlands use euthanasia only for this explicit termination of life by a doctor on request. Nothing else. So not assisted suicide, which is separate in our law. So that's also a different. And I see now, if I look at the world, I see gradually more and more people of our societies, including 
dignity in dying in their names or whatever. And I see gradually more and more people not talking about assisted suicide because in the States there is much opposition against suicide, using suicide. So we now mostly talk about medical aid in dying, MAID as it is called in Canada. And I see this movement going around the world that we avoid actually the discussion about names where we should have a discussion about what's happening and why do we do it or why do we want it. I think words matter and I do understand why there is some push and give and take around words but I also think that actions are probably much more important. Sometimes we can get distracted by talking about words when it would be much better in some ways to talk about principles. Another word I've discovered people push back against for understandable reasons is the word clinic. When I reached out both to Dignitas and to Expertise Centrum Youth and that's in Switzerland and in the Netherlands. Both countries don't like the word clinic because it implies that everyone can come to a singular place in those countries and have access to assisted dying or euthanasia, which is not the case, right? Talking about the euthanasia or the now the expertise center euthanasia, which is called now, they changed the name because they wanted to avoid the clinic. But originally it was a live end clinic. And the idea was originally that in principle, if someone had not a location or a venue where they could have their euthanasia, they could come to that institution. I think it has been giving more problems than solving problems by mentioning clinic. We always have to explain it is not like a hospital or a hospice or whatever. You can't go there to have your euthanasia. It is an institutional organization. And also clinic is, of course, more connected to hospitals if you talk about clinics. And what I see around the world when they talk about euthanasia or medical aid in dying, in papers or, or articles, they want to have an illustration. They always put an illustration with a hospital bed or a doctor in a white coat or whatever, showing a drip which is going into you. So making it a clinical issue where my experience as a GP, it is far from clinical. It's a very close private, emotional uh, happening. People go to Dignitas because they can't get an assisted death in this country and they haven't got the comfort of thinking that, that it's available. There are some constraints on that. You've got to have about ten or £12,000 to spend, which is a lot of money for some families. And you have to travel before your time because you have to be able to get on an aeroplane. And once you're there, you really can't change your mind because guess what? You're in Dignitas, your family are all there, they've paid a lot of money for you to go. You're going to think... Oh my God, yeah, I can't change my mind now. Whereas with an assisted death at home in bed, in a place where it's legal, you can say right at the last minute, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to go on a little bit longer. So going to Dignitas is rather a sort of final thing to do. It's expensive and you have to die before your time. It's quite wrong that we're outsourcing our assisted dying to another country. It's Absolutely. completely wrong. One of the reasons to avoid the word clinic additional to this idea that we could keep framing it all as completely kind of clinical and medical is that there's a lot of foreign visits that happen. People go without even notifying the people in those countries because it's illegal in their country of origin. You have kind of a problem with people just 
turning up and not understanding what the process is. That's a reason for people in the Netherlands or in Switzerland to get involved in trying to get change in other countries so that we don't have this tourism for basic rights, but instead people can get those basic rights in the country of origin, right? Yes, that's the idea, of course. And I know that Dignitas especially is making it an issue for their vision and their mission to help changing laws everywhere in other countries. This is not specifically a goal or an objective of the Dutch Right to Die Society, although, of course, the Dutch Right to Die Society is ready available for giving information on what was happening here. I think the assistance or the support to other countries and other organizations is more an objective of the World Federation, where we will try to to assist uh, or to support our member organizations in other countries. For example, recently in Portugal, we are supporting Spain. We have been supporting Canada, etc., etc. So we, we're working on that. And we can learn from each other. The, Problem is, of course, that that's what I always say about the Dutch law. The Dutch law is there because it is fitting into our culture, to our uh, jurisdiction, our, our juridical situation. You cannot implant our law in any other countries. You have to adapt to their culture, adapt to their juridical system. This is happening all over the world at the moment. And what people don't understand, unless they're told, 150 million people around the world now have access to assisted dying. And that is spreading all the time. California is the biggest state, but there's a number of other states. Oregon was the first first one uh, 20 years ago. A number of others have passed legislation and a number of others are looking at it. Then you've got Canada, then you've got a couple of states in Australia, you've got New Zealand who are putting it to a referendum. Now, once you put assisted dying to a referendum, it's going to happen because we know in this country that 84% of people want to see a change in the law. And that's pretty kind of steadfast around the world, that the majority of people want to see a law for it. So if they would give us a referendum in this country, there'd be no question, but that we'd have legislation for it. The other thing that's been interesting around the UK is that slightly peripheral places are looking at assisted dying. So for instance, Guernsey looked at it and they didn't manage to get a vote through, but Jersey are looking at it now, the Isle of Man are looking at it. Scotland are going to be looking at it, I think in a couple of years time, they're, they're organising things up there. Once you've got a bit of the United Kingdom, which goes in that direction, it's going to be impossible for the rest of the United Kingdom just to say, we're not going to do it. And it's certainly going to be impossible to say what the opponents say, which is we can't make it work. Sorry, guys, 150 million people have made it work. Why can't we make it work? Well, you see, the, the funny thing was what I saw when we finally approved the law and it became implemented. What I told the press around the world, actually, that for the Dutch family doctor and the Dutch doctors and the Dutch patient, nothing changed very much because we had already for 10, 20 years, a kind of tolerated euthanasia practice. On the moment the law passed... There was nothing changing in the practice of the euthanasia. And what we saw after the first year, actually, that we saw a fall in the number of euthanasia. What everybody expected was an enormous rise in, in euthanasia cases. And we think that the main reason is for doctors who were used to a kind of system before we had the law. 
that if they complied with certain rules, they would not be prosecuted. Doctors were afraid that once the law was into effect, the authorities would be more severe in following or prosecuting. So they were more afraid to report. Well, actually, they had to be less afraid because it was absolutely clear what kind of criteria. They were not strange or difficult. So we saw the rise after two, three years, it started to rise gradually. And I still think there is a rise, yes, but not a dramatic rise as all our opponents always were afraid of. We and our minister Bost, who made the law, actually was very clear. She said the main criterion, the most important one, is that the one who is asking for euthanasia must be suffering unbearably and hopelessly. Unbearable is something the patient says. I cannot bear this suffering any longer. And he asked the doctor, and the doctor has to conclude or come to the conclusion that he has no reasonable alternative to make the suffering bearable. In that way, it is hopeless. And in this definition or this way to describe the act, you don't see anything about terminal. You don't see anything about physical or psychiatrical uh, case. It is just a description of the actual situation. A patient, whatever his disease or problem is, a patient is suffering unbearably and hopelessly. Then the patient has to ask and then the doctor may comply with that request and follow the procedure. And it's very interesting to see who's opposed to assisted dying, because you've got 84% of people in this country who want it. So why haven't we got it? By and large, most of the religious leaders oppose it. Most of the leaders of organisations that deal with people with disability and most of the leaders of the medical profession oppose it. But the interesting thing about those facts is if you look at, for instance, the group of people who with disabilities, their leaders are absolutely opposed. But people with disabilities, 86% of them think we should have assisted dying legislation in this country. People who profess to a religion. 80% of them want a law for assisted dying. Their leaders, with the exception of one or two people like Desmond Tutu and George Carey, absolutely opposed. And it's been very useful for politicians to stand up in Parliament time and again and say doctors are opposed to this. So that's why I absolutely fought last summer to have the British Medical Association do a survey on its members, which is just concluded, actually. So we're waiting for the results of that. The British Medical Association poll on physician-assisted dying, as they've termed it. And then in 2019, we had the Royal College of physicians and then the Royal College of GPs. And there's been really heavy campaigning pressure to get all of these three organisations who were all officially opposed to assisted dying to go neutral. The Royal College of Physicians took a very controversial decision to go neutral in the uh, in early 2019, despite the fact that opposition was still the largest group of members who responded. The Royal College of GPs uh, just recently announced that they're going to remain opposed when again they got very similar numbers to the Royal College of Physicians and then the BMA we don't know what their response will be because we're still waiting for the figures to be analysed but this idea of medical organisations going neutral it's a real campaign strategy of campaigners for legal change because quite rightly they see that Parliament has been often very well informed by medical associations and if doctors go neutral, then it's often seen as dropping opposition and it can be voiced as, well, here's a reason why we should change the law because doctors are no longer opposed to it. And we've seen a lot of 
controversy about the RCGP's decision, which seems strange to me because uh, if you take something like Brexit, when the results were very close, very strong opinions on both sides, and yet we went with a simple situation where the people who voted you know, the most for one thing, then that, that carried the day. And we don't hear anybody saying that we should be neutral on Brexit because of the strong polarised opinion. You just can't really live that way. We'll see what happens with the BMA and we'll see what effect that has on Parliament the next time a bill comes before us. But it's definitely another real ideological battleground for us at the moment in this debate. But the Royal College of Physicians, 30,000 members of the Royal College of Physicians, did the same exercise last year. And guess what? A diversity of views amongst the profession, but the majority voted for the Royal College of Physicians to move from a position of opposition. And the best way of accommodating that spread of views was just to say we're neutral on this. We won't campaign for it. We won't campaign against it. We're not even going to think about it because it is actually a question for society, not for doctors. But of course, we have special expertise as a profession. So when legislation comes back, as it will, again and again and again, because this is social justice and people want it, all medical bodies should just say, this is a question for society. We're not going to be for or against. We will just be here when you want to discuss it because it will come back. It's like votes for women. It's not going to go away because it's a bit of social justice that everybody wants. So, hey, guys, let's just make it happen now because while it isn't happening, 17 people a day are dying with suffering. One person a week is going to Dignitas and 300 people a year are killing themselves, which is dreadful. The Royal College of Physicians, even before the vote was taken, they said that we will move from opposition to neutrality unless more than 60% of our membership vote for one of the outcomes. And in a three-way vote, it's virtually impossible to get more than 60%. So they were basically imposing neutrality on the college before the vote was even taken. So in my mind, that's a real overriding of the opinion of the members, because then when I think it was 43% voted to maintain opposition, which was essentially the same as they'd done several years before that in the last poll, the college changed its position when actually there was still at the same level of opposition from their members and it was still the largest group. So I had a real problem with that. But then when the Royal College of GPs late last year did their own poll, I think it was 47% were opposed to legal change, 40% were for legal change and neutrality came a distant third. And so again, they took the very sensible decision to go with the largest group and to maintain their opposition to legal change on assisted dying. But that provoked a howl of protest from campaigners who really thought that they should have gone neutral despite the fact that neutrality came last in the vote. I've just written an article about it with the British Medical Journal, actually, because it's an absolute scandal. They, they asked one question, basically. Should we remain opposed or should we drop our opposition? 51% of people voted for them to drop their opposition to different degrees. So either to move to neutrality or actually to move to a position where they supported assisted dying inexplicably and quite I think it was a cowardly and dishonest decision, personally. They decided to remain opposed. And I have written an article calling on them to explain themselves because they're a representative body. So why aren't they representing their members? Even having a poll doesn't really silence things because you just then start arguing about how to respond to the poll and the the different percentages. It's extremely interesting that we can't get this through Parliament when we know that the public supported. Just a very little anecdote. When the legislation was last going through, I was invited by a Tory MP to go and speak to his constituents down in Gloucester. And I did 
a debate with an opponent of assisted dying. And it was clear that the audience were absolutely pro-assisted dying. In fact, they were attacking me because our version of assisted dying doesn't go far enough for a lot of people. It's about terminally ill people, six months to live a sound mind and all the rest of it. Somebody in the audience asked the MP who was actually chairing the meeting. Towards the end, she said, well, look, you can see this hall is absolutely packed and your constituents all want a change in the law. What are you going to do? And he looked a bit shifty and he said, oh, well, you know, it's my job to look after vulnerable people. And it was clear that he wasn't going to vote for the legislation. I find it hard to see how in the UK, with all of our emphasis on ethics and consent, that things could change quickly. But then we've seen in a situation like Canada, things have changed very rapidly in just three years. And then in other places like Oregon, after 20 years, there's there's been little change. It would be impossible to predict exactly how things would go here in the UK. What we can say is that there are people right now campaigning for laws in the UK that go much further than those that Dignity in Dying would go for. But we just can't say how things would go. Once you've opened the Pandora's box, it's not really up to us about how it goes. The law at the moment represents a natural boundary. And with all of the challenges that that situation gives us, especially caring for people in difficult situations, I think that on balance, it's the best place to be. I would feel a lot happier having these discussions if many of the people who are campaigning to change the law were honest about the potential for incremental extension of the law, because very often we see those dismissed and people just say, oh, well, look at Oregon, everything's fine. Whereas people don't like to talk about Canada or Belgium or the Netherlands where things have changed very significantly. I see in England or in the UK, I see the funny thing happening that actually people who go with a UK citizen to Dignitas At the moment that person arrives back in the UK, he can be arrested because he assisted someone in the suicide. Right. And actually you have seen in your system that they actually hesitate to prosecute because they they prosecute something which is certainly not popular with population. (laughs) Uh, And of course, I I know from the the Dutch history that in 1980, 1985, I think it was one of the prime minister at that moment who made a commission to do research into how many times do doctors actually help patients because we knew since 70s that doctors did do it and his hope was actually that that number would be quite low because it was not very high the doctors uh, applied uh, euthanasia they could say as a politician you know these things happen We don't talk about it. We don't make it a law. We just leave it to doctors to solve these kind of difficult problems. And the result of that commission was that at that moment, it happened 3,000 times a year. And that is, of course, too much to keep your eyes shut and say, all right, you know, doctors solve it. So they had to sort of legalize at that moment. If you are not complying with the criteria of the euthanasia law in the Netherlands and you are prosecuted, you are prosecuted for murder because you terminate someone's life without request or not according to the the euthanasia. And there you see the the practically black and white situation. And of course, whatever happens, and we've seen recent prosecution in the Netherlands, the first one in the euthanasia situation, whatever that doctor may have done wrong, 
that doctor certainly was not a murderer. Nobody considered that doctor as a murderer. She didn't follow the criteria. That's something else. And I had another very interesting experience at work just before the last legislation was going through Parliament. Somebody I worked with came to me and said, Dr. Davis, why is assisted dying such a bad thing? And I said, well, it isn't really. Why do you think it's a bad thing? And this person said, because I've had a letter from my church asking me to write to my MP saying, please don't vote for this law. You must put in your letter to your MP. I'm worried about vulnerable people, but you mustn't put in your letter that we've asked you to write it or that you're a religious person. So in other words, the churches were organising mass letter campaigns to MPs written by people who had no idea what they were saying. They didn't know about vulnerable people. They were being told by the church to put that in a letter. MPs are worried about this very vocal minority. They tend to be conservative, a bit like the, I mean, conservative, the small C is being as big, obviously. I like the medical profession. These ethical questions are big and it's a huge issue. And quite frankly, they don't want to talk about it because let's just leave sleeping dogs lie, but it's not, it's a sleeping dog that is not sleeping anymore. It's just going to keep coming back until something happens. talked about dignity as well. That's another term which is often used in the discussions, but it's very rarely defined. So Dignity in Dying is obviously the main campaign organisation in the UK that would like to change the law on assisted suicide. They talk about dignity for people at the end of life. And of course, that's very positive in the way that it's spoken of, but it's not usually defined. And what does that actually mean? If you look in a dictionary, the main definition of dignity is the value that we give to other people, how we treat somebody. So if somebody is in an end-of-life situation, giving them really good medical care, being there for them emotionally, making sure they don't have financial worries, having their family around them, that is giving dignity to somebody. Whereas most of the time when it's used in the end-of-life discussion, it's more about autonomy. It's about people wanting to have choice and control and people thinking, well, I can't do what I used to be able to do. I've lost function. We very often hear here, the cases in the news, people who might have been company leaders, business people in power and authority, people used to calling the shots and, and making their own choices in life. And then they get an illness like multiple sclerosis or motor neurone disease. And quite understandably, that's a terrible thing to have to come to terms with not being able to do the things that we used to be able to do. And so it's often about how people feel dignified, but dignity is a slightly different thing. I've been a doctor now for decades, and I've seen a lot of patients in that time, die deaths that I wouldn't want to die, wouldn't want my family to, wouldn't want my worst enemy to die. Dignity and Dying have done research that shows that 17 people a day die with unrelieved suffering, even with the best palliative care available. They cannot deal with everything. And you've actually got 17 people a day dying. I'm not talking about the people who go to Dignitas or the people who kill themselves. I'm people talking about people dying every day with unrelieved suffering. I'm not being told how they're going to deal with those people. I'm just hearing about theoretical concerns that have never been proven, for instance, in Oregon, where there's been a law there for 20 years. I think personally, the main discussion point, even in the Netherlands, is that when you talk about euthanasia or medical aid in dying, you're talking about, on the one side, someone who wants to have the right to say, it's my life, and I make a decision about when and how to end it. The problem originates at the moment 
that you make as a patient the decision, I want to die, I don't want to live on in this way, and then going to ask assistance from someone, if it's a doctor or anyone else. In the same kind of thing that you have the right to ask, that person has the right to say yes or no. And the fierce proponents of this self-determination point in the law are actually sometimes denying when you talk about medical aid like doctors to say no. They say, it's my life. I want to make the decision and I don't want you to meddle with my decision. Where these doctors or these other persons have the right to say, I am not prepared to help you because I consider this not reasonable. You're not at the end of your life or your suffering is not unbearable or is not hopeless and we can do everything. And there is the whole discussion going. So you have actually two sorts of euthanasia or medical aid in dying parties. You have the ones who are very fiercely proponents of the self-determination side and the other one is the dignity side. And I think the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, the original euthanasia laws are more on the dignity side. So our law actually defends a doctor who applies euthanasia. It is not in favor of the patient. Yes, the patient has the right to ask also without the law. Every patient around the world has the right to ask, doctor, I am suffering, I want to die. That's no problem. The problem exists when that patient asks help from someone else. And that help or assistance can be a doctor who gives the injection. It can be an institution which provides medication. It can be a person who supports you in doing what you want. And as somebody who campaigns with dignity and dying, we're very specific about what model of the law we support. And there's a reason for supporting the model of the law that's been going in Oregon for 20 years. And that is largely because it's been going for 20 years. They were pretty brave when they did it because there was no one else to look at and see how it was working. And they've been under the microscope for 20 years. We know all the figures about what's gone on there. And it's very specifically for people who are terminally ill with six months or less to go of sound mind. You have to be able to give consent at the time and settled intention, which means that you say that you want to do it and then you have to wait a week or you know, some, some interval of time, although that can be speeded up if you're very ill. The most flack I get, for instance, and I do public speaking about this, is that we don't go far enough. Why don't we include demented people? Why don't we include people who have got disabilities? People assume that the only kind of assisted dying is going to be administered by a physician and a lot of the assisted dying that's available is administered by the patient to themselves but they're given the facilities to do so safely and unpainfully and all of those things exactly the things I think my dad would have wished for. People often talk about Oregon and the United States it's a bit of a utopia for end-of-life campaigners to say well it's been going for 20 years the law hasn't really changed much has changed just slightly in this last year although I admit not very much but then you look at other situations like Canada, for instance, the law only permitted medical aid in dying there in 2016. And already in 2019, it's changed very significantly when a court in Quebec said that it was unconstitutional to restrict medical aid in dying, which is essentially euthanasia there in Canada, to people whose deaths were reasonably foreseeable. So there was a terminal illness provision in the Canadian law, and that's now being struck down by the court in Quebec. The federal government is is thinking about how to respond to that, but it's absolutely logical because many, many people who have difficult situations suffering that there is no end in sight to it would like to have the same sort of choice. The law you pass is the law you get. The opponents of assisted dying are often referring to what goes on 
on in the Low Countries, Belgium and the Netherlands, they had a completely different law there from day one. Under the Oregon law, you have to take it yourself. And the Oregon law was very carefully written. Interestingly, you know, the Oregon Hospice Association, when the law came through, they said, we're taking you to court because we don't think that this should be available. And by the time it actually came to court, the law had been in place for a while. And the Oregon Hospice Association said, oh, well, actually, we don't want to take this through anymore because it's looking pretty good from where we are. And most of the people who avail themselves of the Oregon law and have an assisted death are actually in a hospice already. So it's not as though they've been denied hospice care and they're in a terrible state and this is their only way out. And the important thing about assisted dying that a lot of people don't understand is that most people who inquire after it, who even get the medicine delivered and put it in the fridge, they're not going to use it. It's there as an insurance policy because the people who have a death approaching are afraid of a death where their suffering can't be relieved. They've heard about unpleasant things that can happen to you at the end. They feel they may have an undignified death where they're doubly incontinent, they can't get out of bed. And a lot of people really could not tolerate that thought. So they want to know that there's something there if they need it. And most people don't need it. 0.3% of deaths in Oregon. So less than half a percent. Because although only 0.3% will avail themselves and assist everybody, 100% of people know that it's available. One of the th- things I've read about is people are depressed often about it. And then when they've been given permission that they can have this assisted dying, then they cheer up, they relax, they stop being depressed because they know they have that freedom. I think that's such an important point and it isn't given enough coverage. For instance, this relative of mine, if she had been told, look, at the end, when you get to this point where there is this loss of dignity and all the rest of it, you could choose this. I think she would have been able to say, I'm going to spend these last few weeks in a much more cheerful state of mind. We're all going to die. It may not be a very acute realisation for many people, but she would have just parked that a bit and said, bring in my children, bring in my grandchildren, bring in my great-grandchildren. Let me enjoy this because I know my time's limited, but I don't have to fear that. Whereas she lived in fear for three months, or sorry, I lived with her, and it was a dreadful thing to see. And she could have been relieved. Why are these people not allowing that relief? I've had this argument in debates, and I think it does show a lack of compassion. And they don't like that accusation. Of course, palliative care people do an immensely compassionate job. And I wouldn't like to be a radiologist. I haven't had to deal with dying people day in, day out. But it's compassion on their terms. And if they wanted to be really compassionate, they would listen to those terminally ill patients and they would act on the patient's terms and not their terms. The palliative care movement, palliative care provision is inextricably bound up with these debates about end-of-life legislation. And one of the very positive things is that people on both sides of this debate can and should really be able to get behind improving palliative care provision. Now, when I've talked with many patients at the end of life, both in a hospice setting or in a prison setting as a GP or just in the community, very often requests for euthanasia or assisted suicide or just the the let me die doctor requests usually comes from a situation when people have uncontrolled symptoms when they're in pain, they don't know what's happening, things are happening fast, they haven't maybe had conversations with their family, they're scared, they might have symptoms such as nausea and vomiting. Many of these things can be dealt with. It can be hard to think of a time when palliative care wasn't there, but it's only actually in the 1960s that it became a specialty in its own right. Many people know the name of Cicely Saunders, 
she was a doctor, she was actually a nurse and a social worker before then, and she became convinced that the care of dying people was really substandard and we could do a lot better with that. And she essentially founded the palliative care movement and the first hospice in the modern world at St Christopher's in Sydenham in South London. And one of the principles of palliative care was that of total pain. It's not just about physical pain, it's about psychological distress, it's about spiritual and emotional distress, that you have to deal with all of these things when you're caring for somebody at the end of life. So total pain and total care, and also very important in the beginnings of palliative care was that you're not looking to end life, you're not looking to lengthen it inappropriately. Sometimes it's perfectly appropriate to say, let's just not try to prolong things further. Let's just keep somebody comfortable. Let's care for them in all of their symptoms, both physical, mental and spiritual and emotional. And that's very important. So that's been really, really crucial across this debate. And we need to make sure that palliative care provision is really good because actually palliative care provision is still quite patchy. And that's the case in many countries that have legalised physician-assisted suicide in, in different forms, such as in Canada, where you have a legal right to request what they call medical aid in dying, but you don't have a right to palliative care. It depends on your level of insurance. And that puts people in some really heartbreaking situations. So palliative care is certainly not the the be-all and end-all. If we have really good palliative care provision across the board, that does greatly reduce the calls from patients to end their lives, but it doesn't abolish it. And I think we have to make sure that we separate those two. They're interlinked, but they're not the same. Many people who are calling for a choice at the end of life and assisted suicide or euthanasia, it goes beyond the actual dealing with the symptoms into existential questions like we've talked about. A basic kind of principles of freedom and autonomy and those kind of things, which I guess, you know, everybody has different mileage on how much they believe in those things. The other argument that's used is, oh, well, we don't know. Who can prognosticate about six months? It doesn't matter because I go back to my original point. These people aren't suicidal. They don't want to die. This is something that they want to reserve for the very last day. It's, oh, I can't stand this anymore. I want to go now, but I want to go on my own terms and not vomiting or bleeding or whatever. I talked to a group of anaesthetists last week. Their observation was... It's the families who make these patients keep going when they don't want to anymore, who insist on the next treatment and the next treatment when the patient just saying, withdraw it, withdraw it, I don't want it, I've just had enough. And so the notion that we're going to be surrounded by avaricious families trying to bump their granny off, in Oregon there's no evidence of anything like that happening. The disabled people, it's not available to them. And People don't want to die before their time and their families certainly don't want them to. We think of campaigners in the UK such as Paul Lamb, who has uh, been in, as he says, constant pain since a road accident that's left him paralysed basically from the neck down for uh, around 30 years. He would not be eligible for assisted suicide under the very prescribed law that is being proposed by people like Dignitine dying. He doesn't have a terminal illness, he doesn't have a six-month prognosis, and yet we have to have compassion for somebody in that situation. My dad would not be eligible for assisted dying based on what dignity in dying are doing. It is definitely a question that I even have, even though I support all of these things. And I know his wishes from back before he had dementia were for assisted dying when the time came. Hard to work out when the time is going to come, particularly if you get dementia. So he would not be eligible for it. But it doesn't mean that, first of all, I mean, I can see an argument that he should be. But also, even if he couldn't receive that, he would still say that that 
that should be other people's option. It should be there for as many people as it can be, he would say. Well, sure. And again, you've highlighted one of the second main areas where the law would be liable to challenge because firstly, autonomy, if anybody wants it, if, if the suffering is suffering for them that they see as intolerable, then it shouldn't be limited to terminal illness. But also if we're going to provide it on the basis of compassion, then somebody in possibly your dad's situation, obviously don't know your dad, but someone who might be suffering greatly through advanced dementia combined with many physical illnesses, you might look at them quite reasonably and say they would never have wanted to live like this. And they may even, as you've intimated, have said in the past things like, you know, if I get to this stage, you know, I don't want to live like that. Now, it's always hard to really estimate how somebody would feel when they get there. Most of the surveys that we have for the public supporting changing the law on assisted suicide, it's mostly what you might term the worried well. It's people who are fit and healthy and will think, oh goodness, I wouldn't want to be in a wheelchair, I wouldn't want to have somebody wiping my bottom and being fed through a tube, you know, that would be terrible. I couldn't survive with that. But then when you ask people who actually are in those situations, yes, some of them will feel the same way, but many of them will think, do you know what? Life's not like it used to be and there are plenty of problems, but every day still has good things in it. And so until someone's in that position, it's hard really to say how they would feel about it. But then in advanced dementia, you can't really ask them. So it's a really difficult situation to be in. But if we were purely operating off compassion, then we would have to say that people with advanced dementia in some form should be eligible for euthanasia. And yet it's very difficult to make that call. Many countries have gone with that, but then places like Holland and Belgium, they have gone down the euthanasia for dementia route. And there have been some recent court cases that have shown just how difficult that can be. There was a court case recently, I think it was the Netherlands or possibly Belgium, where a doctor was in court because a dementia patient who had previously expressed a desire to have euthanasia, when they came to do it, the patient was struggling. The doctor and the family had to actually hold the patient down and administer the drugs. And that's a terrible situation to be in. And of course it brings up all sorts of problems the definition in the netherlands is that the patient must request for euthanasia being competent and knowing what he or she is asking for and having considered so the big problem in the netherlands is as well that if you get demented i mean you know by the experience of your father that you start off by gradually slow one day more than the other day the result is that in the Netherlands, if you want to die in dignity or have assistance in your dying, when you are going to be demented, most people say, I want to die at a moment I am no longer myself. But that moment, you are incompetent. So if you really want to avoid that, you have to die earlier. You have to die so early that you still can request the euthanasia as a competent person. Then, of course, you have to convince your doctor that your suffering is unbearable. And nowadays we see, and also in the description of the law, we say that knowing that you're going to be further demented can cause such a fear or such a problem for your life that that causes suffering which is unbearable uh, and hopelessly because you know dementia is never going better it's also going uh, worse so we see euthanasia in the netherlands happening only in early dementia cases this year last year we have one or two cases 
where the demented patient was really demented and not longer incompetent, but had a long time communication with the doctor, about which so the doctor could sort of comply with the request which has been put months or years earlier. But that is very seldom. That's, that's also here a big problem. And we see around the world that organizations striving for a law try to avoid these difficult problems. They say, we want to have a law, like in the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, Canada, etc. So we talk about physical problems. And that's where it's mainly started off in our country. 85-90% was terminal cancer. We're still 75% of the euthanasia case is terminal cancer. So certainly, physical problems are the main focus of these laws. And the only things where what is making problematic around the world is that I see legalization going and talking about terminal care, that it must be a diagnosis which makes sure that you die within six months or something like that. And I think personally that is not good because one of the things doctor cannot do is say how long you're going to live. When they say six months, you live probably nine years. And when they say uh, it, it's all right, you die within a week. That's a problem. But it is a kind of safeguard organizations built in to take away opponents' arguments. And unfortunately, that is a kind of movement which I think is not very good because we then see that you will get euthanasia laws. Look at Victoria and Australia. It's a law which actually legalizes euthanasia, but you have to comply with over 45 criteria, which means that the first year, I think, one or two people use the law. And that is certainly not equivalent to the number of people who want to use the law, but they are not able to. Doctors are afraid to not follow the criteria. As I've said, the majority of campaigners in this country made a decision a while ago that the law we were most likely to be able to get through was based on the Oregon model. There are campaigners, of course, who campaign for a broader law. They're a smaller group. To a certain extent, it's about pragmatism that we will get the Oregon law in this country. And that's the law that has been adopted around the world for all sorts of reasons. And as I said, when I I do public speaking, the most flack I get is from people who think that we don't go far enough. But my argument would be it's better to get something than nothing. And I believe that the people who campaign for a broader law will not get anywhere in this country as things stand at the moment. And it's much better to address that suffering in terminally ill people, most but not all of whom are cancer sufferers, and make that available. I know that a lot of people will be unhappy with that, but that's just how it is. There is an essential difference between most cases of dementia. I mean, there is early onset dementia, which is a whole different conversation, but there is an essential difference between someone who has an illness that is incurable and somebody who has old age, who has got death very soon, regardless of whether it happens on his terms or on whatever's terms, on life's terms. And of course, there are hard cases and we do have to consider them when we're framing laws. But it's very dangerous if we just focus on one individual person, say, look, this person's in a terrible situation. How would you feel if you were in that situation? Well, of course, we must change the law to make things better for them. We have to consider things in the round and think, well, how would changing the law for this 
this person affect other people who might be in equally difficult situations? How might it put other people in danger of abuse or coercion? When I'm late for work or late for the airport, I'd very much like to drive it over the speed limit. That would really help me and it would help me catch my plane or, or do whatever I need to do. But I recognise that my own autonomy has to be curtailed to protect other people. So you've always got to do that difficult balancing act because there will always be another hard case and another hard case and another hard case. And therefore, if we make laws on those premises, then there will always be a case for changing the law further. I live in a quiet residential road here and there are probably two views at the extreme of driving down a residential road. One is why can't I drive down this road at 60 miles an hour? Because that's what I want to do and damn the rest of you and the dogs and the children and all the rest of it. And another is we shouldn't have any cars down this road or they should all go at five miles an hour because guess what? People live down this road and there are animals and there are children playing and all the rest of it. So what do you do in society? You decide where to draw the line that's reasonable. If you live, as I do in in London, there's a speed limit out there and there are speed bumps. And that's what society has decided, where to draw the line between the people who say, I want to be able to do anything I like. Like, and people who say, I don't think you should be able to do anything. You shouldn't bring your car around here. If you like, it, it is an arbitrary line, but it's been shown to work. It's been shown to work for 20 years now in Oregon. There hasn't been any slippery slope. There hasn't been any danger to vulnerable people. It's about where you draw the line, and we've opted to draw it there. But I know other people would like to draw it in other places. It's also very interesting, you said about your father, that he didn't feel that he was the person he was and that he wasn't enjoying things anymore. Because one of the things that's emerged in Oregon, which is used to beat us up with, and I don't think it should be, is that people who are contemplating assisted death, it's not just about suffering, not always about suffering. It's about much more nuanced things like loss of dignity, not enjoying life anymore, not being able to do the things that you want to do anymore. And opponents will say, well, that's no reason for wanting an assisted death in a terminally ill people. We're talking about people who are about to die anyway. To which my response would be, who are you to judge? What makes people who want to be alive stop wanting to be alive. That's not for us to judge. If you get to a point where you think this is a really miserable existence and I'm going to die within a, you know, a couple of weeks anyway, that's your decision, not our decision. And it is so bizarre how the medical profession, which has changed radically since I qualified, from being paternalistic to being actually declaration of genius, we have to put the patient at the centre of everything. Suddenly at the end of life, which is one of the most critical times when people should be able to make decisions about what they're doing, turn around and say, well, that's not a good enough reason for wanting to do that. To which my reply is, how do you know what it feels like not to be able to feel depressed? I mean, you have to get a psychiatrist in to evaluate people to see whether that can be relieved or whether that's just something that is the way that person is and it should be respected. Sorry to say, in a number of countries, religion is one of the major opposition, especially the Catholic opposition. Although we see in typical Catholic countries, Spain, uh, Italy, movements going on. But if I see in the United States, for example, trials to have laws, even the not very intense Oregon rule, where like UK is trying to follow the Oregon model. You see the opposition there is from the Catholic side. And actually they put in lots of money from the church and they influence politicians. And 
we see in Australia things happening like that. So we see a lot of religious opposition. All over the world, we have majorities of the population who are in favor of legalizing any form. Why, if 68 or 70 percent of our population is in favor, why not 70 percent of our politicians? And that is, of course, because politicians have more responsibilities and they are afraid to support or to legalize anything which turns against them in the next phase of their election process. And they want to be re-elected, things like, like that kind of issues. And the World Medical Association, the umbrella of all the medical associations around the world, actually is against euthanasia any form. I have no proof of it, but I also dare have the feeling that religiosity is playing a role. I know many people of faith, and I know people of faith who support assisted dying, but there are different ways of relating to faith, and some faiths would suggest ultimately our autonomy, yes, we have it, but there is a higher power, there are higher reasons, life is sacred, those sorts of things. And we're meeting here in the Christian Medical Fellowship. I assume that you are a person of faith. So what is at least the Christian view? Because I guess I shouldn't ask you to speak for all religions, the Christian view on these things. Because we believe that human beings are, as the Bible says, made in God's image. We're, we're actually there to reflect his nature. We have a dignity because of that, a value that is inherent to us, it's not about what we can do. And therefore, Christian doctors and nurses down the, the ages have often made great strides in caring for patients because they see the inherent dignity of human beings. If you look around here in London, many of the great hospitals, St. Thomas's, St. Bartholomew's, St. Mary's, they're often from monastic institutions because of Christians who thought that they should be caring for the sick and the dying. And like I've said, the palliative care movement in modern times came out of Christian principles. So there are lots of ways that Christianity talks about that. And also, of course, people are familiar with in the Ten Commandments, there's the idea of you shall not kill or you shall not murder. I think that the question about exactly where you draw the line between things like judicial killing, that sort of thing, the death penalty, that's a slightly different situation. But generally, it is not seen as a good thing. And there's nowhere in the Bible where suicide is seen as a good thing. That's very different from, say, Greek philosophy, for instance. But I think it's really, really important in this debate to, to separate out what are religious principles from the things that are talked about in the legislation and in medical debate today because I get very frustrated often because people who want to legislate for assisted suicide, they very often have a, an ambivalent relationship with religious people. So very often arguments against assisted suicide and euthanasia can easily be written off because, oh, well, you're just religious. And certainly some Christians will express some of their thoughts in, you know, the Bible says this or the Bible doesn't say that. And that is important for Christians to be able to articulate that. But in public discourse, we don't live in a Christian country. We may have many Christian principles that the UK has been influenced by over the years. But most of the people who are thinking about end-of-life decisions either don't have a faith or it may be of a different degree or different kinds of faith. And so we need to make sure that we can discuss that on broad principles. The arguments against assisted suicide, they are really independent of whether somebody has a faith. We talk about protection for vulnerable people. We talk about avoiding pressure on people to request things when they maybe don't want it. We talk about coercion and abuse and that sort of thing. And then we talk about the extension of legislation from one stage to another, like we've seen in many countries. All of those things, there are some of the main arguments against assisted suicide and euthanasia. And all of those things are completely independent of any religious thinking. It just so happens that people like myself, who's a Christian, I'm more sympathetic to some of those things because we know that human beings 
beings are inherently selfish and therefore it's very easy to see that people at the end of life can be vulnerable to coercion and abuse. I'm very conscious of that. Or they can be vulnerable to feeling a burden. We know we know that as well. And we know that with the best of intentions, if you frame a law at one stage, then after the culture's changed and the people have got used to it, then often people are clamouring to move on to the next stage and the next stage. And we've seen that in many jurisdictions. And we can even see it here in the UK. There are already people clamouring to change the law far beyond the very limited scope that say dignity in dying would be asking for at this stage. It's an interesting thing and maybe not something I'm used to hearing from uh, Christians and certainly not any of my Christian friends, the idea that humans are innately selfish. I mean, I guess it correlates with ideas I know from Catholic people in my life, but it's not necessarily the only way that Christians look at human life. My own personal view is humans are potentially selfish, but I also see humans being wonderfully unselfish all the time. And when we talk about laws, I recognise what you're saying, that once a law is formed, then people can advocate for that law to go further or to change into a different thing. And sometimes laws do take us down a road and there are more logical steps further on that road. But we don't have to take them. And in fact, we often don't. And also many of our laws are nuanced. You were referring to a distinction between state-sanctioned killing for criminal acts, which is something I'm very against. Many people who are Christian are very against. So it's important to make that clear before people decide all Christians are pro the death penalty. I think there's room for laws to be nuanced. Most laws are and good law is. And when we talk about this kind of thing, I find it frustrating that it gets framed as a debate because I see stuff that we can learn from the palliative care movement. I see that as being an incredibly important movement and I'm really pleased that that was brought about and great that Christians helped that to be brought into the world. In my perfect world, in my perfect law, you know, I would want palliative care to be a right and assisted dying is is how I prefer to think of it, but we can say assisted suicide for the pur- purposes of this. I would like both of those things to be everybody's rights. Mm. And I think that that would mean that there would be less assisted suicides because I think people would be like, I've got great care and if I ever want an end... I can have one. We won't have failed suicide attempts, which can happen. And particularly with people like my dad who have dementia, that can get very messy and just mean that they're in a lot more pain for a lot longer, make their dementia even worse and things like that. So I think both of those rights or both of those laws would be complementary to each other, to my mind. But obviously that is not the case for your mind, right? Sure. And I think you've highlighted a number of really important questions there. I think laws have to take into account not just the utopia that we'd all like to have, you know, the way things should operate, but they have to work in the real world. If you take a couple of good ideas about society, you take communism and capitalism in their pure forms, the theory behind them is great, you know, and they should work really well. But as soon as you put real people in in charge of them, then very often the selfishness comes out and you see things falling apart and you see vulnerable people being hurt by them. And that's why we have to have laws and regulations because human beings do tend to look out for number one and, and that affects everything. 
and you don't need any kind of religious perspective to understand that. You just need to look at the world and look at history. People are, are abusive and terrible and I see many of those things in my life and I definitely don't trust all people and I don't think it would be wise for anybody to just assume that, yeah, humans will just be all right, we'll do it all nicely. That's why there's assessment, that's why there's laws, that's why there's framework for all of these things to mitigate against selfishness. I don't quite understand why we can't have nuanced, complicated laws and frameworks that will address many of the absolutely important concerns that I'm glad that you're bringing to the table. But I don't necessarily think that the law and that people can't deal with complexity. Whether or not we agree with a specific law, all of those countries assess people. They don't allow assisted dying to happen without any involvement of medical professionals who are going to assess patient to see if they're of sound mind and body and all of those kinds of things. And that is what most people who are asking for assisted death or assisted suicide are asking is, assess me, I'll prove it to you. I mean, I don't necessarily think we should make the dying and the in pain jump through endless hoops, but there definitely is always going to be some hoops. I think the law does need to take individual cases into allowance and I think that's one reason why for instance in the UK there are hardly any prosecutions under the the Suicide Act for assisting a suicide. We hear lots in in the media about relatives being treated like criminals and criminalised and some very harrowing stories when actually there are hardly any family members who are prosecuted or even arrested or charged for this because while the police have a duty to investigate each situation, it's very rare that things will actually come to court or an arrest or prosecution. And I think in these situations, rather than stoking fear, we should be saying, look, the Director of Public Prosecutions makes it quite clear the kinds of situations that are more or less likely to result in a prosecution. And loving family relatives who are responding to a persistent wish from a family member, they really do not have to fear being arrested and prosecuted. And that's very important there. When the Abortion Act was passed in the UK in 1967, it was meant to be for a small number of very difficult cases, you know, rape and incest and very uh, severe fetal abnormality or when the mother's life was genuinely in danger. And those cases now are a vanishing minority of the situations when abortion is performed. So the culture has changed massively and the the practice of that law just from 1967 has changed greatly. So I think there are a number of ways that we need to think very carefully about the present situation based on looking back both in the Declaration of Geneva, the World Medical Association's declarations and also experience from euthanasia and abortion law in in other countries. We all take the Declaration of Geneva. When the British Medical Association holds its meeting every year, we read that out together as doctors. And the emphasis of that is really putting the patient at the centre of what you do, listening to what the patient says. And we've forgotten that the patient should be at the centre of everything.
often I'm thinking very much from the point of view of patients having dignity, having self-determination, bodily autonomy, all of these kinds of things are the kinds of ways that I come to this. I also think of what it's like to be a family member, seeing somebody who wants an end of life and being powerless to help them to have what they want. If I was to take my father to Dignitas, first of all, Dignitas don't really want people to do that. But if I did do that, then when I came back to the UK, I would potentially be a criminal. But I don't tend to think about what it's like to be the doctor, to be the medical person in this. So I guess you have some direct experience and wider experience around that. What's important is that also for the doctor, a decision to terminate someone's life is a decision which you cannot take on the spur of the moment. It is not a normal medical decision like giving an injection for the flu or giving someone a treatment or even cutting someone's belly to take out the appendix or whatever. It is a decision you have to arrive at in good communication with your patient. I try always to explain the Dutch law by saying that the main criterion is the suffering which must be unbearable and hopeless. And the word end is very important because the unbearable is the patient who says, doctor, I cannot longer bear this suffering. And the hopeless is the doctor's decision. The doctor can say, I can do something for you and I can take away the cause of your suffering. And maybe if I can take away your suffering, it is no longer unbearable for you and you can live on longer. So the word end means that the doctor and the patient has to come together and say, okay, we are in the same field. And then finally, we are there that we make the decision that this is the only reasonable solution out of your problem. Yes, I am not trained to kill a patient, but I don't consider euthanasia as killing a patient. I am actually terminating suffering. That is the most important thing. That is not a kind of structure I've made for myself. It is the feeling I had. And I know from my experience that before you arrive at a decision, you have to know your patient very good, actually. And one of my colleagues always said, you have to love your patient a little bit before you can do it. I know that some doctors are not able to do it. And I don't blame them. I only say, be honest, if you don't do it, tell your patient that you go and look for another doctor to do it. But when you do it, my reminiscences, or you call it what I remember from my cases, is a good, good thought, good memory. One or two of them sometimes are very intense. And I even sometimes say that I can still smell the moment it happened. But it was a very intense emotional moment. And yes, of course, you have sadness because you lost actually a friend. But because the patient in the meantime was a kind of friend of you. And at the same time, you were very happy because you could provide that friend or you could comply with the final wish of your friend. Certainly in the beginning, when it was more exceptional than now, that is one of the emotional circumstances I remember of it. And I still hear from doctors who do practice euthanasia this kind of feelings. And yes, of course, now it is more accepted, further than only tolerated. 
is accepted as one of the things you can do. And you still, as I said, this large majority is terminal cancer situations where people are actually really suffering enormously physically. Sometimes even the, the shortening of the life is maybe only two or three or four days. But still you can terminate that. And in whole discussion, there's also a disturbance between if you're talking about death or dying. Well, some people are afraid of death being dead, but the most fear is about the dying. That is where they fear the horrible side of dying, having sufferings and things like that. And by euthanasia, you prevent the last bit of the dying process and you make it easier. And what we see actually is once you have, and that's what my experience as family doctor was, when I told them that they could ask me, they I would be prepared to at least talk about it. But finally, if it was necessary, I would help them. In, I think, three out of 10 cases, when I said, okay, if it's really bad, I will help you, people just stopped talking about euthanasia because they knew there was a solution out of the horrible dying thing. And that knowledge was very important, actually, in, in the whole issue. We always said that out of 10 cases, three stopped thinking about euthanasia because they stayed on living until they died. Three they were not complying with the rules and so we could solve other uh, physical problems. And three only finished in euthanasia. And that is situation still around the country also now. And I think if you've talked to a euthanasia expertise center, you've heard there also only 30% of the requests are finally finishing in euthanasia. I made the decisions together with my patients. Of course, the patient asked, and I looked at my side, and we together came to the result that this was the only way, only reasonable way to solve it. My background is campaigning for the health service, actually, and stopping the privatisation and all the other things that have happened. And one gets a bit depressed about that because you see the march of the Tories, quite frankly, and austerity and cuts and the introduction of the private sector. And I've been doing that for 15 years, but I'm not at all convinced we're going to win that one, although we are holding back the tide. But we will win this one with the system. Now, we have to. There's no question about it. It may take two years and it may take 20 years. And shame on everybody if it takes 20 years but it's worth fighting for because we're we're definitely going to get it Down to a Sunless Sea on the Getting Better Acquainted podcast feed or on its own dedicated feed. If you go to podcastviews.com, then there's a survey there that I'd really appreciate you filling in. It only takes a few minutes, and if you do it, you can be entered into a prize draw for a £50 Amazon voucher. This survey was created by the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust so that they can get an idea of the impact that their funding has had. And if you are filling out that survey, Down to a Sunless Sea counts as Getting Better Acquainted because Getting Better Acquainted is the podcast that it evolved out of and that it's produced by. 
You can find Down to a Sunless Sea Memories of My Dad on Facebook. It's on Twitter at Sunless Pod. You can email the show at down to a sunless pod at gmail.com. The episodes and the show notes are all collected together at down to a sunless pod.com. Thanks to Dr. Jacqueline Davis, Dr. Mark Pickering, no relation, well, probably no relation, and Dr. Rob Jonquier for their contributions to this episode. If you want to find out more about the organisations that they're involved in, they can be found at carenotkilling.org.uk, dignityindying.org.uk, nvve.nl, and worldrtd.net. It's an interesting thing. As I've been doing this show, I've been kind of going through a lot of my dad's life and history. And one thing I know is that there's lots and lots of uncles out there that he never really followed up on. So we might be very closely related. Who knows? I mean, we're talking like when he lost contact with all of his uncles was kind of just after World War II. So it's absolutely possible that we're more related than than we know. Well, you never know. We lost my granddad in World War II and we've also lost touch with some of his siblings. So you never know. Cousins, right? But they didn't come. I mean, they lived up in. One cousin lived up in Liverpool, right? And the other two cousins lived with Uncle. Can't remember the names of my uncles now. Yeah, I mean, but, but one of them. This is not information I have that I can help you with. No, but one of them had two sons and a daughter, who were my cousins. Right. How many uncles did you have? What, living in Bristol? Living around, yeah. Um, not all that many living around. Uh, but most of them lived, you know, some of them lived in Liverpool and other places. No. So you had, we had a lot Uncle together. Colin, we had, I had Uncle Colin living in Bristol. He was the youngest son of my mother's parents, my maternal grandparents. He lived in Bristol with his wife. Uncle Hiller, at that time, lived in Bristol. I think he was the one who lived in Phil. Apart from that, it was my grandparents. One lot lived in Hawfield, one lot lived, I'm not sure, either in Cottermore or near Cottermore.